the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and we're back after a hiatus and recalibrating to our new normal, and I can't wait to share some of the interviews I've been doing with the prizes shortlisted authors. If you're new to the podcast, uh, what you'll find here are conversations with those whose books have been shortlisted for the annual prizes. And if you haven't had a chance yet to look at the shortlist for the 2020 books, what are you waiting for? You can see all of the details about the books, the authors and illustrators that have made the list on our website, which is bcyukonbookprizes.com. We've also added a new prize this year, the Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. So we will have a new selection of authors to fit that prize. And there's so much more exciting stuff to explore on the website as well. So be sure to check that out um, if you need an introduction into what it is the BC Book Prizes are. It's a great place to start. So I've been busy doing interviews and I was struggling with which book, which author to choose to kick off the new season. And after a lot of humming and hawing, I decided to start with a book that I devoured in two days. And no, this was not a book of poetry. There are many great poetry collections on the shortlist, but the book I'm talking about is Greenwood, and the author is Michael Christie. Michael is a fiction writer who splits his time between Victoria and the home he and his family built on Galliano Island. Greenwood is his second novel and is nominated for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. I'm not sure whether I love this book for the fact that it is aesthetically gorgeous. If you've seen it on a bookshelf or in your local library, I'm sure it caught your eye. It is a beautiful book. Also, I just fell in love with the characters. They were fascinating and complex. I wanted to know what happened to them. And also, I have a lifelong love of trees. In my conversation with Michael, we talked about where the idea for the book came from, the importance art has in conveying serious messages, and how he built a story that takes readers into the past and into the future. Michael starts our conversation off with a reading from Greenwood. My name is Michael Christie, and I'm going to be uh, reading from my novel, which is entitled Greenwood. Uh, it's a multi-generational family saga that centers on the Greenwood family and spans 130 years. Yeah, so I'm going to be reading from two very short sections one of them from uh, the, the character of, a, of a, a guy named Liam Greenwood, who is a carpenter and who grew up with his mother uh, in a Westphalian van. Uh, his mother was sort of like a fervent environmental activist, and Liam had a pretty unusual childhood as a result. So this short, short chapter is called A Question. Do you love the forests more than you love me? His mother shifts in the lawn chair she's pulled from the Westphalia to sit by the ocean, running a hand through her salt-tangled hair. They've finally made it to the Oregon coast for his 10th birthday, except the water here is black and freezing and the waves are squat and impossible to surf. Liam has spent the afternoon in a funk, 
crushing between two rocks the purple mussel shells that he finds on the beach. The cold hasn't stopped Willow from skinny dipping all morning, bobbing out there with an armada of bull kelp. He wishes she'd wear the bathing suit he'd prudishly bought for her with his own money at J.C. Penney, but she hasn't even removed the tags. His question hangs in the air, unanswered, as she slowly quarters an orange with her opie nail and then bites into a wedge. He's asked this question before and knows it annoys her, but he repeats it anyway. He needs her answer more than he needs anything else. And perhaps because it's his birthday, this time he gets one. You're a good person, Liam, one of the best, but you're just one person, she says, sucking pulp from her teeth and spitting it into the sand. Nature is greater than us all. And for the second little bit that I will be reading, um, it comes later in the novel, and it's uh, also in the character of Liam Greenwood, and he is grown up, he's a carpenter, uh, he is has been injured and is lying on the floor of a house that he's refinishing, and he's kind of contemplating his life and, and thinking about his relationship to wood and to trees. And it's called Clear. Wood is time, captured, a map, a cellular memory, a record. This is why, Liam believes, carpenters like himself will never go out of business, because people will always keep wood close, in our houses and on our floors, ceilings, and walls, in our trusted canes and our finest musical instruments, in our heirloom tables and old rocking chairs, and, most tellingly, in the very capsules that ease our journey into the ground. When carpenters call a piece of wood clear, they mean it is free of knots and wanes and blemishes. And during his many years of fussing over wood, cutting it to exact lengths and lovingly fitting it together just right, all before buffing it to a soul-warming shine, Liam Greenwood has often thought that people like clear wood best because they need to see time stacked together, years pressed against years, all orderly and clean, free from blemish or obstruction, the way our own lives never are. Thank you so much. Thank I, you. I have to say, I I kind of fell in love with your characters. At the beginning, you know, I... I struggled with Everett and Harris, you know, they're, these are all very complicated characters, but so interesting and complex. Where did the characters come from for this book? Wow. I, I mean, from my imagination, I suppose, which is the <laughs> easy, cowardly answer. Um, those particular characters, the brothers Everett and Harris, Way, aren't necessarily based upon my brother and I have, an, I have an older brother, but I certainly drew a large amount of kind of personal experience and, and you know, sort of my own experience of being a brother and knowing what it means uh, and sort of injected that experience into this relationship uh, between these two, these two people. So um, although I would say that this book o overall is maybe sort of the least 
autobiographical thing that I've written yet, just in the sense that it contains so many characters and it sweeps across time and place. And it's kind of a, it's bigger than, than me. Uh, and I like that aspect of it. Yeah. I, where did the idea for the story come from? Cause like you said, it does spend so much time. It goes mm -hmm. way into the past and even into the future. So where did the idea for Greenwood come from? I don't know. I kind of had these characters sort of orbiting in my mind. You know, one of them was a timber tycoon. One of them was a carpenter. One of them was a a scientist who is studying the communicative properties of trees. And another one was an environmental activist. And at one point I sort of realized, oh my God, all these people have something to do with trees and forests. Isn't that interesting? I mean, at the same time, I was also building a small house out of uh, the trees that I brought down, my wife and I brought down on the property where we live. And so trees and forests were very much on my mind during the writing of the novel. And so it, it came to me almost, you know, sort of later on in the process that I was actually writing about one family and that these people were all related to one another. And, that, and that's when things really kind of took off. I think the thing that came as I was reading it that really yeah. came through to me was that it really is a story about connection and relationships um, from the big kind of like meta connection and relationships to the like nitty gritty ones we have with the people around us. Did yes. you see those threads going into it or was that something that kind of came out in the writing? Um, I think it came out in the writing. I also, I'm, I'm, you know, just in all of my work so far, I've sort of used, you know, I'm three books in now and you start to recognize recurring themes or recurring patterns. And I am very much interested in family and, you know, inherited trauma and inherited, you know, sort of stories. Um, and, uh, I think this book was my way of really getting into what it means to be part of a family and how much of a fiction it is and also how constructed a family can actually be and how unreliable our stories can be with regard to our ancestry or in with regards to our history. And so, I mean, this, yeah, this, this book was, was my, my way of doing that. Mm -hmm. It was interesting to me because I, I have this thing I do when I do the podcast, uh, when I read the books for the podcast, I try yeah. not to read the, the synopsis before I dive into the book. So I kind of go in blind, um, aside from the cover. But uh, I was really taken by the structure of this book. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the structure and how you came upon it. Sure. It's The story is told in sort of concentric sections which are intended to model the rings of a tree um and so the story begins shortly in the future with a particular character and then it travels back to 2008 for a different section and then back to 1974 back to 1934 back to 1908 which is the sort of beginning of the greenwood family and it's the, that chapter is called the heartwood of the story which is what the core of a tree is named and then the narrative travels back out through those layers again so it's almost like nested russian dolls of of stories and i came on this idea after i mean it's gonna sound really kind of corny but i i'd cut down a tree and was looking at a stump and kind of realized that a, a tree's rings are a kind of a narrative and are not only a record 
of the tree's life in the sense that we can count the number of years that it's been alive, but they're also kind of like a, a map of its existence. And I thought, oh my God, what an interesting way to tell a story. Um, and I'd never seen anyone do it before and I, and I, I got excited. And so that was how I ended up structuring um, the novel. And it has its own challenges. I mean, some people, you know, the first section you meet a particular character and then you don't meet her again until, you know, 450 pages later. <laughs> uh, so uh, there are challenges, sort of, you know, structural storytelling challenges inherent in that. But I really, I, 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 it was great fun to structure a book in this way. And I think it generates quite a bit of sort of suspense. Yeah, that was one of the things that I really noted was the way you were able to play with suspense in the structure and and because at first I wasn't aware that you'd done the kind of tree uh, ring stru structure for it. Yeah. You kind of just want to keep going to figure out what's going to happen to these people because you leave them and want to get back to them so quickly. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, it's, you certainly don't want to have like a cheap sort of cliffhanger type ending. But at the same time, you know, I, I knew that if I was going to force, hopefully encourage someone to read a 500 page novel, you know, a reader needs a good reason to, to invest that time and to feel like that time will be rewarded to some degree. And so, yeah, I was very aware of, you know, trying to keep the pages moving and trying to keep those sort of narrative hooks into the reader as, as, as they progress. There seems like with this book that there was a sense of urgency and I know it obviously it's fiction but the content mm. and the kind of like that looking into the future and saying you know what if this was our future it creates a sense of urgency in the message was that was that something you were trying to work in there as you wrote yeah I mean I didn't set out to write a sort of environmental a story of environmental collapse but it it, it ended up happening in the in the book that in a way that sort of felt organic and 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 earned to some degree and so yeah we haven't mentioned yet but it the the future section is set during a time a period known as the great withering and it's a time when most of the world's trees have have browned and died of, of various diseases but or and and fungal infestations that are mostly sort of climate change related and i i you know i've i've talked about this book quite a bit and it's you know I really would love to say that it required an enormous amount of imagination uh, by me and pat myself on the back but you know I live on uh, Galliano Island and uh, there the western red cedars uh, which are you know trees that have been used by indigenous people for all kinds of things for thousands and thousands and thousands of years are browning and dying due to drought stress and it seems or it appears uh that this tree is not going to be able to live in our climate zone uh much longer because of climate change and so you know i merely expanded upon that fact more than i imagined a kind of unlikely future um I, i'm really much more sort of concerned with you know just following things that are already existing just forward a little bit into the near future i find that a lot scarier than a kind of a science fiction dystopian future and so that yeah that was a big part i mean and i'm obviously 
as a human being and as an artist, I, I am thinking about stuff like, you know, the climate a lot. And so it just factors into my imagination while, you know, while at the same time being careful not to get preachy and, and, and not to, 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 for the art, not to suffer, but uh, it is, it's an environmental novel. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I thought that was interesting was with the, with the cathedral and, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's that looking into the future, looking one step further and saying, you know, this could be something that's only for the elite. But at the same time, we're, we're almost seeing hints of that now. I, I saw a picture recently of some celebrity wedding in the Redwoods that was completely unsanctioned and they had to clean up <laughs> oh, from God. the mess. And it was like, huh, these our green spaces are already having this kind of like a novelty or something when before going into the woods was something for the the poor and the and the the lower classes and it seems like there's already that shift happening a hundred percent yes and i think you know i've you know people like naomi klein have pointed this out that as our climate changes and as our societies are transformed there is no guarantee that this is going to be done in an equitable fashion and that inequality which is already rising and is already at unsustainable levels won't be even further exacerbated by this new reality that we're going to be living in and so yeah if you to think that you know now that we're becoming aware of what a wonderful resource and how you know psychologically and and, and emotionally important green spaces are to the human being of course the powerful and the elite are going to try to corner those places and, you know, wall them off from the rest of us. And so it, that part of it, I mean, as bleak as it sounds, you know, didn't require much imagination either. Yeah. And, and I, you have kids. Is, did I read that? Is I do. That correct? Okay. Yeah, I do. I have yeah. two sons. Yeah. And so I would imagine that, you know, writing about this kind of stuff and imagining a future, you know, you hope that we won't see that future for, you know, the younger generations. Was How did that play into how you saw this material? Oh, it certainly does. I think, you know, I was always a fairly politically interested person and, and environmentally interested person, but, and not to suggest that people who don't have kids are not envi- just as environmentally engaged as, as, as the people who do. But for me, my, in my own experience, uh, having kids really sort of cemented my ideas of, of, of my place in this kind of continuum of being, you know, and this sort of handing over to generation subsequent generations and, it really, you know, drove that home for me. And, and and this book is very much about that kind of intergenerational relationships that, you know, that the parents and, and children and their children and their children and sort of watching kind of traumas and, and, and stories reverberate through time. That's something that really interests me. During, actually, during the writing of this book, I uh, lost both of my parents and also had uh, one of my kids, but, and it just had my other one just previous to starting it. So it was very much present in my mind, that sense of, of being a part of this chain of being and watching two people, you know, leave the stage of life and watching two people enter it is really humbling and is very 
you know, powerful thing to witness. And I tried to sort of capture some of that feeling in the book as well. Mm -hmm. And too, probably watching your growing up in such a beautiful wild place as Galliano, I'm sure your sons have developed their own relationship with trees and those wild places too. They do. Yeah. And I mean, I, yeah, I try to give them as much opportunity to be outside and to be in the forest and, you know, doing physical things as, as I possibly can. I mean, you know, we still, we have screens and we're not like a completely technologically <laughs> shut off Robinson Crusoe type situation, but it's, it's really nice to have nature accessible and, you know, if I'm chopping wood or if I'm, you know, my wife is building something like a garden bed, you know, kids come in and watch. And, and, and that's, it's a great, it's a very rewarding thing to be able to sort of provide those experiences to your kids. It seems like maybe life was a bit of research in this, but did, did you have to do a lot of uh, research to kind of fill in the background? And also I was really caught by some of your references to wood. I was like, I had no idea about that. <laughs> so it was, it, I was learning as I was reading uh, Greenwood. Did you have to do a lot of research for it? I did. Yeah. And I, you know, I, trees and forests and, and carpentry and everything related to, you know, wood is, you know, you can kind of, you can, the research just keeps going because it's sort of like a limitless subject, you know, we're so intrinsically tied to, to forests and trees as human beings. So, uh, but yeah, like for each section of the novel, it required its own set of research this is kind of why it took five years to write uh was i did a ton of reading around the timber industry in bc i researched people like hr mcmillan of mcmillan and blodell i researched the depression in canada the effects of the depression um rail shipping um, <laughs> and then in the 70s i researched sort of the burgeoning environmental movement green i interviewed some of the folks who started greenpeace i you know, did that work as well. So yeah, there was a whole bunch of sort of separate, but also related deep dives in of research into the particular time periods to really get those details right. Because I knew that if I didn't, I would be in trouble. Do you like research? Was it enjoyable to get lost in those wormholes? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I am a kind of obsessive person. <laughs> so I, I think the real danger though is to go too far and to and I and I did do it a little bit with uh the 1934 section I at one point I gave an early draft to my agent who's a very good writer himself and is an incredible editor and critic and he was essentially just like you need to turn down the historical detail on this section by about 50% Cause you know, I had like the names of cars and the names that, you know, like I was just, just trying to sort of inject as much of that detail that I turned up, uh, in my research into that section as I could. And it's, and it got, you know, overburdened and kind of like labored at one point. So I was, I, I had to cut it back. So I think for me, that is the danger. It's not, it's, it's that everything is interesting when you look into it. And I think this is true. This is one thing that internet kind of teaches us is that, you know, there is an unlimited amount of things you can learn out there. And it's very important to be able to try to keep a, keep yourself reined in to some degree and keep yourself 
on task. I, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and I, I know mm-hmm. we're not supposed to judge books by their cover, but Greenwood is just like, as a, as an, it's like art itself. Like it's so beautiful as a book um, and including the tree rings on the pages and the little details of uh, Willow's name in the back. And I know writers don't get involved in that process, but <laughs> how were, did you see it as it was going along? And, and what did you think when you saw your book, the way it, it came out? Yeah, I mean, they I, they did involve me in the process, which I don't know, you know, I don't know how I got so lucky, but I, you know, the the, the designer of, of the cover's name is Jennifer Griffiths, and she did an incredible job. And I think, like, we were aware, my editor, who whose name is Anita Chong, and who is one of my favorite people in the world, she was brilliant enough to recognize the fact that a book about trees and paper needed to be a beautiful object in itself. Uh, and so we did, you know, we we did the page wood grain detail on the edge, which I still don't understand how it works or what <laughs> <but> Jen <laughs> Griffiths figured it out uh, to her enormous credit. Um, and it was, and then also the book was printed in pretty much the most environmentally uh, sound way that is possible in Canada. And um, it was like stuff like that, that was very, important to not only me but to everyone at McGullen and Stewart because we knew that you know people were going to be spending a long time with this 500 page book in their hands um and it would be and what a great opportunity to really make the reader aware of of the thingness of a book and the beauty of 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 books themselves so i'm i'm, I'm yeah when when i first held it i cried that you know it was the predictable um reaction just it was mostly relief but then also just wonder at what you know what an amazing experience it is to to produce a book and to have it appear in real life it's incredible yeah and to go through you know i because i have heard from some writers that they they don't get get to see the covers or they get you know some say but not a ton but to really get to be be involved through that whole process must have been really really special it really was, yeah. It was, uh, it was a wonderful experience for sure. I, yeah, and I'm so happy with how it turned out. And I mean, also, I mean, there's a U.S. cover that's different. There is a a German cover that's just coming out, and I like them all. I mean, they're all sort of a different take on on the book's uh, contents. But it's 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 been a it's been fun to just watch that happen. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Michael. And thank you to you, our listeners, for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. And if you'd like to find out more about the prizes, you can find us online at bcyukonbookprizes.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, so you can find us there too. And if you have questions for any of the shortlisted authors, send them our way. Um, I'd love to hear what you would like to know about these books, about the writing. And if I can, I'll integrate them into uh, the questions I ask these folks as we go along. Coming up on our next episode, I talk to Robin Stevenson, whose book My Body, My Choice is nominated for the Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. I've also got conversations with Yosuko Tan, Helen Knott, Kia McClear, and many more coming your way soon. 
But until next time, stay cozy, support your independent booksellers. They need you right now and enjoy some great reads.